The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I am here today with Ana Reyes, the author of the debut thriller, The House in the Pines. Ana has an MFA from Louisiana State University, and her work has appeared in Bodega, Père Noir, The New Delta Review, as well as other places. And currently, she teaches writing to older adults at Santa Monica College. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. So right at the start, I want to state that with books like this, I try to keep the conversation spoiler-free. I don't want to ruin anything for our listeners. So I'm going to try to keep the focus on themes, of which there are many to choose from. But before I go too far into the conversation, I was wondering if you could tell us what The House in the Pines is about. Sure. So The House in the Pines is about a young woman named Maya who is trying to move on with her life after a difficult past when she sees this YouTube video that's gone viral. And in it, she sees her ex-boyfriend, Frey, sitting across from a young woman at a diner who suddenly drops dead. And the thing, the thing about this is it's happened before. Seven years ago, Maya's best friend was talking to Frey when she suddenly dropped dead. And in both cases, uh, he never touched the women. There's no obvious indication of how they died. They're just completely mysterious deaths. And Maya feels sure that he caused these deaths somehow, but she can't prove it. Nobody believes her. And it kind of slowly undermines her sanity, essentially, as she continues to not be believed. Yeah. Addiction and withdrawal underpin this novel and put your main character into a challenging position immediately in terms of reliability as determined by the outside world. It's a real and it's a present challenge for a lot of women who've suffered trauma as their testimonies are seen as less credible. That's not news to anybody. But you don't allow for incredulity on the part of the reader at all. It, as a reader, you almost expect to factor that in, but it doesn't Really? Why did you choose to include that challenge for Maya? Well, interestingly, I was dealing with clonopin withdrawal myself at the time. I was I was an insomniac. I've kind of always had a little bit of trouble sleeping and I had depression in my 20s. So I went to a psychiatrist here in Los Angeles and I told him what was going on. He prescribed me an SSRI for the depression and then clonopin to help me sleep. And this particular doctor didn't warn me that it was addictive. And he I only saw him a few times. He just kind of gave me an endless refill and I always filled it and it does help you sleep. I mean, it, it really truly does help you sleep. So I continued to take it for a number of years before I decided to go back to school and get my MFA. And when I did that, I went to a school where the campus doctor um, said, you can't be taking this every night. I'm not refilling your prescription. And she cut me off cold turkey. And she told me like, you'll be fine. You might have a couple uncomfortable weeks, but you know, this isn't something that I'm going to keep refilling for you. And she kind of acted as if I was an addict just for asking her for it. And she kind of 
had a little bit of an attitude towards me that I felt like was dismissive. And I didn't really feel like I could tell her, did tell her that it was hard. I went back and I was like, this is really hard. But I didn't feel like she was really listening. I didn't feel like I was being believed. And at that same time, I was working on the book, What is Now the House in the Pines? At that time, it was untitled and it was my master's thesis. And so I was going through these really horrible withdrawal symptoms. And but I was also feeling a little bit uncertain of myself because as far as, you know, the doctor was concerned, I shouldn't be going through this. So I had this sense of, am I crazy? Like, is this withdrawal or could it be that that I am just losing my mind and I'm never going to get better? So as I was dealing with this, I'm also trying to write a book. And I ended up funneling a lot of that experience into the book. So a lot of what Maya went through is based upon what I went through. Although it's heightened for dramatic purposes in a lot of places, those symptoms are very real. And I now know that colonic withdrawal is very real. And as you said, it's something that a lot of women have been prescribed at some point. And there's just not a lot of infrastructure set up for the people who suddenly have to go off of it. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion, and this isn't necessarily the book for it, but there's a lot of discussion about how the medical field really has played a role in furthering addiction and worsening addiction for a lot of people. Your story is emblematic of that. A lot of people have stories that are emblematic of that. In this particular book, it just ratchets up the tension a lot and creates this foundation of instability for yeah. this person who is who is faced with a recurrence of their past trauma. Right. So Frank, Maya's ex-boyfriend, is like a, a master manipulator. Yes. All of the contact, there were so many pieces of it that it was like, oh, that guy, you know, like I feel like, oh, oh, I dated that guy. All of the contact between him and Maya is totally on his terms, which makes any attempt at contact on her part, like seem unhinged. Like she has to like go out of her way to really try to like get a hold of him. Right. And it makes it seem like it, it's, it's sort of more of an obsession like it creates a, a big power dynamic and he show he exerts his power by like showing up at her house uninvited which is like a house is really like a refuge for a lot of people and that's like another theme here is a house is a refuge it really intensifies the feeling of surveillance and threat yeah i'm glad you picked up on that because i do feel like frank as a character is also a heightened version of men that we've probably all met at some point any person i suppose could act this way but the person who makes you come to them who, you know, Frank, he drops by her house, he calls her whenever he wants, but he never gives her his own phone number. You know, he's like, here's my father's phone number, but I don't have a cell phone. So all contact that they have is initiated by him and on his terms. And to me, that felt very real. And then I just kind of ratcheted it up <laughs> for the sake of storytelling. Yeah. It was another one of the pieces of this story that just like, it kept you on the edge of your seat. Like it felt so compelling because you just oh, you just felt for this young woman, you know? And you see the danger that's coming to her because you preface it in the beginning of the story that yeah. she loses her dear friend. Another part of the book that was sort of described Maya's like unmoored state of being was being raised by a white woman as a biracial child, a single white woman alone in the United States. And and part of the reason Maya's mother's a single mother is because her Maya's father was killed in Guatemala. And have Maya's mother describe the violence perpetrated by corporations and the United States in Guatemala that that started all this. What role did Guatemala and your Guatemalan heritage play in this? Book? For me, a lot of her experience was based upon my own, with the exception, the major exception, that my dad is alive, thankfully. 
But I grew up hearing about the Guatemalan Civil War. He told me about it when I was young, just like Maya's mother told her. And he told me about it in such a way that would be understandable to me, which meant that it almost had a fairy tale like feel. You know, it's like there were these people, the Mayans, who had been living on this land for, you know, many, many thousands of years. And then there was the United Fruit Company, and they kind of came in. And in reality, but also in the telling, they serve as the role of antagonist. And so there's a very clear narrative. And it's a story that I don't think a lot of people hear about because it is the U.S. corporations and also the the CIA that are the antagonists. So that's probably part of the reason why a lot of people don't really know the history of the U.S. and Guatemala. But it was a story that I grew up with. And so when I started to write this character and she was half Guatemalan, it became important to me to get some of that in there to explain how she would sort of have this legacy behind her, this trauma that she didn't experience directly, but the sort of scars of that trauma, the generational trauma would clearly play out in her life. And I think that's true of so many people who have roots in colonized places, even if they didn't grow up there, even if they were themselves part of uh, the colonization, they kind of carry the scars that get passed down. And so I wanted to sort of show that in Maya's character by including that. Yeah, I'd love that filament of history that's sort of woven through there and her connection to her heritage, even though she is sort of separated from it by countries, by a language barrier, she still has that strong motivator within her. Like there's a strength within her that's connected to that. And it was really beautiful. And I think a lot of people can really connect to that. A lot of folks that are in the United States whose families come from colonized areas who feel conflicted about that history, who feel divorced from that culture and and miss it and long for it can really connect with it. What is the significance? When she's in Guatemala, actually, there's a point where the cactus, the Reina de la Noche cactus, blooms while she's there. Was there a significance to that or you just really wanted that cactus there? I really wanted that cactus there. The idea of this flower that only blooms once and in the middle of the night has always captivated me. So I've always kind of been interested in that flower and When I found this opportunity to use it sort of as a metaphor for this beauty that blooms in darkness, I just seized it (laughs) and I wove it right in there. I had to look it up. I want to smell the flower. I just had this moment with it where I was like, I could see what, why it like, captivated you because it was really intriguing. You also talk about the Hymn of the Pearl, which features in Maya's father's novel. It also reflects Maya's experiences in reality. And Maya's father's novel like runs really parallel to Maya's story and her experience. Can you talk about the Hymn of the Pearl? Because I'd never heard of it before, but it's important to you and to Maya. Yeah. So the Hymn of the Pearl is this ancient hymn that appears in an apocryphal book of the Bible. And I came upon the hymn separately all doing different research online. And I read it and I was just so moved by the story. It's a really beautiful metaphor in the Bible. It's sort of used as a metaphor for the journey of the human soul, how it starts in one place and then comes into this sort of land, earth, and everything is, you know, extreme and bright, but temporary. And then eventually you return to this more everlasting place of peace. And so I was really moved by that. And I think it can be read as it has been read by many different types of people through many different lenses. So it has been adopted by various religions. But I also read it in sort of a secular way, which is sort of a metaphor for this idea of like going home, wherever it is that you feel you belong. 
even as that place might change or even go away completely, there is that sense of a place that you carry within you that you can always return to. So for some reason, when I read that poem, I just, it sort of clicked to me, the theme of the novel. So I just, again, felt like I had to get it in there. And I found a really natural place within her father's book. Yeah, it brings it all together. It ties all the different themes together in a really wonderful way. And again, like sent me down like a Google rabbit hole, like <laughs> reading about it and learning about it. It is really gorgeous. So you highlight female friendships and their fundamental role. As we learn more about Maya's friend, Aubrey, who we learn in the beginning of the book, dies suddenly in Frank's presence, mysteriously, and the real vital place that female friendships have in each other's lie. I don't really have a question about that. I just want to say that I really appreciate it because for a long time, the portrayals we get of female friendships are that there's like a cattiness or there's a jealousy or some kind of competition involved. And they do go through some pieces of uncertainty around their relationships with other people and their relationships with each other. The way that you portray their friendship is so beautiful and so supportive and so complex that when you realize that that we've lost Aubrey. You realize how much Maya really did lose when her friend died. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, to me, that that friendship was really important because in order for this death to have impacted her so deeply, I felt it was important to show how deeply they were connected. So I really tried to show this this solid foundation that they had. And I like what you said, too, about a lot of stories show cattiness or especially in the past have shown sort of the competition where the story sort of revolves around how two women are fighting for the same man or for the same job or anything. So I kind of wanted to feign in that direction, but ultimately have it turn out to be a different reality. So I'm really glad that that came through because that was really important to me. Yeah, I think it would be unusual if they didn't have some kind of conflict around how a really like into Frank. Maya becomes, I was going to say obsessed, but it's not really obsession. It sort of like feels that way to her a little bit, but you get the understanding later in the book kind of what really occurred, but it would be unnatural if they didn't have some kind of rift around that. I appreciate that that part is in there, but it didn't go fully that direction. Like ultimately they were there to support each other. They were there to love each other. And that was huge and and so beautiful and wonderful. And I love reading stories like that. So thank you for putting that in there. Thank you for reading that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love this book so much. And it's hard to talk about thrillers like this without spoiling them. And I've tried really, really hard because the hook in this is incredible. And the twist is really great. And it builds so seamlessly. The pacing is fantastic. I got halfway through it and I was like, I know who needs to have this book. And like, I was texting friends and family like, you need to have this book because it just is captivating and compelling and fun and interesting. And, and I love it. But it also has all these other little pieces to it. The idea of home, the idea of being displaced, intergenerational trauma, female friendships, there's so many bits to it that elevate it above just just a standard thriller, which is totally fine. No, like no Duncan on standard thrillers. They're also great. But I loved all the different layers and all the different nuances in this book. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much. It did just feel so good after working on this for seven years. Like this is exactly what I want to hear. And so I'm just so grateful to hear that it touched you that way. Fantastic. Yeah, for sure. I have one last question. We do like to ask people this question. 
what does feminism mean to you? And if you wish to follow up, how you wove that into your characters and your story? That is a big question. I'll struggle a little bit to fully express, I think, what feminism means to me. But I think the most important thing is recognition of other women as being on your team and supporting other women. And, and also sort of realizing that women have had to work harder. You know, women have had to work a little bit harder than men for a place at the table. I think the publishing industry is actually doing a great job now. But in the past, we had women having to pretend that they were men by using an acronym for a first for their first names. So I think that for me, feminism is about the recognition and sort of appreciation of all that w- the women before us, all that they've had to do in order to, to sort of make sure that things evolve from the patriarchy of our past. And I think there's still a lot of work to do, but I think that feminism for me right now is just acknowledging that and supporting other women. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for talking about The House in the Pines. It was Awesome. Fantastic. Strongly recommend it. Five stars. Where can folks find you online? So I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Honoreus Writer. Okay. And I'm Mariquita Guerrera. You can find me on Instagram when I'm there, which I always say is infrequently, but really quite infrequently lately, (laughs) at O underscore Murray. Thank you for joining us, friends. Until next time, be well. From Simon & Schuster, today we want to introduce you to a book that will have you laughing out loud and crying tears of joy. Sorry, Sorry, Sorry by Marjorie Ingall and Susan McCarthy is the ultimate guide to apologies. And let's be real, we could all use a little help in that department. Whether you're a serial apologizer or someone who struggles to say sorry, this book has something for everyone. But don't let the serious subject matter fool you. Sorry, Sorry, Sorry is bursting with wit and humor. You're going to love their deep introspection and laugh-out-loud humor about the art of apology. This book is a must-read for anyone looking to improve their relationships and communication skills. So pick up your copy of Sorry, Sorry, Sorry today and start your journey towards better relationships and communication. Trust us, you won't be sorry you did. See what we did there? Click the link in our show notes to order your copy. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.